Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International in Central Ohio. And you're hearing us over EWTN Radio. Our guest today is Joanna Bogle. She was recently on the Journey Home program on Monday evening. So if you had a chance to, to uh, watch that program, you're able to hear Joanna. And Joanna's a lifelong Catholic, so the, the, the usual Journey Home wasn't about her journey, but she talked about, in many ways, uh, the effect of the conversion of her grandfather and how that continued to affect herself and her family. And, of course, a variety of other things, and I would encourage you to go watch The Journey Home. It's on a repeat with EWTN. Joanna is a British Catholic author, broadcaster, and journalist whose books include a book of seasons and celebrations with information on celebrating the traditional feasts and seasons of the year, English Catholic heroines, and various historical biographies, including one of Emperor Karl von Habsburg, the last ruler of Austria Hungary. Oh, yeah, I enjoyed that book, Joanna. I forgot. And one of Carolyn Chrisom. Chrisom? Chisholm. Chisholm. Boy, I've got to get straightened up with my British <laughs> accent here. Chisholm, the, the Australian pioneer. Now, how do you say that in next word? Heroin. Heroin. Yeah, yes. I always hesitate because in America, heroin is always seen as another thing. Oh, no, no. <laughs> we would say heroes and heroines, and Caroline exactly. Chisholm is a, a I great. Always, British-Australian heroine. <laughs> <laughs> Her latest book is a biography of Blessed John Paul II for children. She also writes children's fiction under the pen name Julia Blythe. Well, that's neat. I didn't know that, mm -hmm. Joanna. Wow. She broadcasts regularly with the BBC and other TV and radio stations and lectures to schools, colleges, community groups around Britain. She is in America to make a new TV series with the Catholic Television Network, EWTN, and you were here doing Journey Home, and it's just great to have you on Deep in Scripture. And I'm thinking even now, Joanne, I first welcome to the program. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. And But even now, as I invite you to join me on this program, you feel a little more equipped, right? Because uh, the reason you've even chosen this passage is because a, a great blessing you've had recently. Yes. I'm studying at the Maryvale Institute, and it's one of the best decisions I ever made was to do this. When I first left school, I didn't go to university. I became a journalist, and I've never regretted that. I got a job immediately on a local newspaper. This is in the 1970s, and I, I've, I've loved it. I never regretted not going to college or university. And yet now I'm you know, a middle-aged lady. The possibility arose. Maryvale is a distance learning college based in Birmingham in the Midlands in England, and it's in the home of John Henry Newman. It's where he first went when he became a Catholic. It's a fine old house uh, in what was then countryside outside the city of Birmingham. It's now in the suburb. Um, Newman and his friends walked over the fields to mass in Birmingham. Um, it's a very old house owned by a recusant family. That is a family who remained Catholic down all the difficult years. And in fact, there's a hidden chapel in, in the house. And there's also a more modern chapel, which Newman would have known, which is much newer about. I don't know, a couple of hundred years old, in the days when you could have a Catholic chapel. And after Newman left that house where he'd found refuge because it was owned by a Catholic family and they gave it to him for his home, he went on, as we know, to train as a Catholic priest and to found the, the oratory in Birmingham. And the house, which he named Maryvale, has been in Catholic hands ever since. It was a children's orphanage and things for a while. And now it's a Catholic study centre. And I am loving studying there. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's distance learning. You know, you study at home and you do things by post and so on. But the, the, the weekends that we have at Maryvale, which are throughout the year, you're staying in this beautiful house, mass, morning and evening prayer together, very attractive, comfortable grounds, not glamorous, but just very peaceful and nice, good company. And we're doing the scriptures. And I love it. We began with an absolutely sort of, well, we began with some philosophy, um, you know, Aristotle and so on. Then we really got to grips with theology. What is theology? And then we began on the scriptures and we began with just the basics. What is the Old Testament, you know? And you think, oh, I know all this. But I didn't. Hmm. And we worked our way solidly through the great covenants, covenant story, the story yeah. of our redemption in the Old Covenant. And then we worked our way through the Gospels, the synoptics. And then we did a whole special session on St. John. And we've just begun a few months back on the Acts of the Apostles. And again, I, you know, you, you hear it all as a child. You hear the readings of the scriptures at Mass, and they do soak into you. But there's just an enormous amount I'd never really heard before. Perhaps because it's all so familiar, you think, oh, I know about that. But there are all sorts of nuances that I hadn't picked mm -hmm. up. 
And we have some very, very good lecturers, some, some fine speakers. The, the nice thing about a distance learning college is that they fly in people from, from Rome. They whiz people. I can say fly them from Oxford. Well, you just get on the train. <laughs> <What> <laughs> the uh, we have chaps from Oxford and we have all sorts of wonderful speakers. And we, we really are very privileged to hear some of the, the finest minds in, in the yep. English-speaking Catholic world. And really, I'd never understood about this idea under unpacking the scriptures and there's there's an expectation that you will have at least some sort of sketchy knowledge of new testament greek well mine is sort of sketchy but i did a crash course in teach yourself greek and my nephew helped a lot just to get some basics i don't know any hebrew but they've explained this is this in hebrew and this and this mm-hmm. i am finding it so enriching well let me ask you on this because um in my journey into the church i came from an evangelical protestant world where the emphasis was always, um, if you want to understand a text, you understand it in its entire context. So throughout the year in our preaching, I would emphasize, okay, the next three months we're we're studying Ephesians, or we're going to do the Gospel of John this year. Hmm. So, I mean, we would just go through, my preaching schedule would just follow the whole book. So the people in the pew of course, we were encouraged to have the Bible with them, their own Bible to follow. So they would get the whole context. On the other hand, the Catholic Church, Episcopal, Anglican Church, Lutheran, High Church Methodist would follow a lectionary. Yes. So there is a danger of the lectionary is that people in the pew, if they don't take the time to look at in the context hear it out of the scriptural context all the time. That's true. The big advantage with the, with the lectionary is that you will have the link between the Old Testament and the New yes. so that you will see, um, you know, gosh, of course, this fulfills the promise of the Old. And, and as, as we know, as the fathers taught, uh, the Old is hidden in the New and the New is revealed, uh, revealed the Old, a new link. So what is there implicit in the old is fully revealed in the new. But there is a danger in not seeing what became before and after. And a good preacher should make that link and obviously doesn't. And equally obviously, you know, you can never expect to learn the whole of it in your life. So part of what you should do is that Sunday Mass is absolutely central to our lives. This this is the nourishment. This is the crucial bit of our lives. But it shouldn't be the only thing we do. And every good Catholic should should study the Scriptures. And I certainly had the advantage that I I was receiving a good education in a Catholic school where we were encouraged to know and love the Scriptures. And I remember, to be honest, I remember once a Protestant saying, well, of course, as a Catholic, you were not taught the Scriptures. And I wanted to say, but I didn't. And what rubbish, absolute rubbish. I mean, I learned by heart some of the Psalms, and I still find them very consoling and beautiful. Beautiful. Um, out of the depths of I cried to thee, O Lord, Lord, hear my voice. I was taught the Ten Commandments by heart, and you, if you didn't get them right, you got them again and again till you <laughs> did. I am the Lord thy God who brought thee out of the land of Egypt. We were taught the Beatitudes by heart, and we were certainly taught to love the Gospels, really to love them, so that when you heard them at Mass, these were absolutely not yeah. unfamiliar. And I have to say that I think any happy Catholic family, any good family, they will give their children little books about the Bible. And when I was a little girl, part of the stuff that hung around the house were pictures of Moses in his little Moses basket, you know, and um, of course the New Testament, you know, with our Lord multiplying the loaves and fish. This was all part of life. And I can't remember a time when I didn't know about God making all things, and there were pictures of God and the garden and all that, when I didn't know the scriptures in their very basic form. And somewhere knocking around our house, where probably now among my mother's treasures, will be little old bible books. That was standard as a Catholic child. And the idea I didn't know the scriptures, I'm sorry, was complete rubbish. But I think the point that you make about the, the lectionary is really important and superb because as a Protestant, I might pick an Old Testament and a New Testament. But if I wasn't choosing to follow some kind of common lectionary, I'd be choosing my own connections mm. and so that might be based on my own private interpretation and i know example for for example health and wealth gospel traditions mm. that will take out of isaiah by his stripes you are healed and then connect it to a new testament passage about christ's healing to imply from their perspective from this Old Testament, New Testament reading, therefore, if you have faith in Christ, you won't be sick. Oh, gosh. Or take, again, a verse out of the Old Testament about God rewards those who are obedient and punishes those that aren't. 
So that's the Old Testament reading, and you combine it in the New mm-hmm. Testament where it says, you know, that he will give you overflowing. Um, and so you use that to say, therefore, if you have faith in Christ, you'll be rich. So the beauty of the lectionary is that the Holy Spirit guiding the church has helped the church over the centuries discern the fulfillment of the Old Testament types and images and prophecies in Christ and in the church, and so that on Sunday it's there. My only comment is the beauty of the people, when they heard that, could in their mind place it in the place of salvation history in Scripture. I think you're right. And one of the things that Catholics have learned in a new way in recent years, and particularly since the Second Vatican Council encouraged really good scripture study, is precisely that. And in fact, I think you can say that the church has, in a very important sense, rediscovered scripture study, especially for lay people, especially for lay people. Mm -hmm. And I'm very grateful to be born in this era because there has been a certain revival of scriptural studies. And the Maryvale Institute is an example of that, perhaps because there was an awareness that in these very difficult days, in a very secular Britain, in many ways very immoral and vulgar and so on we need to be nourished by the yeah. scriptures yeah. and and at one time in a way it perhaps wasn't so crucial because somehow the words of holy scripture were all around you in, a, in, in any european country somehow the whole of things people's names the way people the phrases people used you know good samaritan blessed are the meek but now that's not so prevalent and in fact perhaps we need to get to grips with the scriptures and the second vatican council in, in a curiously prophetic way said, right, you really are going to need the scriptures. And something that, in a sense, had always been there was really taken more seriously. And I am grateful for this because it rather annoys me when people make silly jokes, oh, Catholics don't know the Bible. Well, some don't, which is disgraceful. But we should know it. And the church warmly encourages us to. Indeed, you know, ignorance of the scriptures is, is ignorance of Christ. And in fact... Although Mary Vale is unusual in, in offering proper courses, and, and I'm, you know, I'm studying hard, I want to get a degree, uh, it's not at all unusual in running various Bible courses. And I know lots of Catholic parishes that will do some Bible studying during Lent, and they'll say, we're doing St. John's Gospel in Lent. Or they'll follow some systematic path, and or they will take the scripture readings for the Sundays of Lent and then meet during the week to ponder them often with very great profit. Yep. And, I, and I must say as well, I think we need to understand that Catholics venerate the Bible. I mean, I remember when I was taught as a child that when you go into court, you take an oath on the Bible. And that meant everything to me. I fully understood that. I've always regarded it as absolutely sacred. And I think in most Catholic families, if there is a Bible that's in the ordinary room, in the sitting room or in the kitchen, it would be treated in a different way from other books. You know, you would try not to put your mug of coffee down on it. You wouldn't kind of cram it in with, you know, there would always be, oh, careful, that's the Bible. And of course, it would be cherished, you know, probably special wrapper, names and dates recorded in it, you know, even in a quite ordinary family, they would just write in some special event or something. So I think there is a love of the scriptures, but we almost, almost take it for granted. Yeah, and it 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 does take an effort and a commitment. I think the enemy would love to very much discourage anyone from opening up the word and... uh, and uh, it's such, we live in a blessed time because I think for Catholic perspective, I don't want to in any way say that previous popes weren't committed to this, but certainly blessed John Paul and Pope Benedict are both deeply committed to Scripture. In fact, I would strongly encourage those of you that wonder about that to pick up some of the more recent encyclicals and writings by Pope Benedict, and you would see that they're Bible studies. They're Bible studies, and he is the most wonderful Bible yeah, scholar. Yeah. And he himself has spoken of, of the re- rediscovery of the importance of the scriptures. And in fact, he spent a lot of his life enjoying the link this gave between Catholics and, and, and Christians of other traditions. And they, there is a great respect for him among many Protestant thinkers, especially with the uh, recent books about Jesus of Nazareth. These are intensely yeah. enriching. I, I have to say, just as a London commuter to quite often, really quite often, on the train going into work, you will see somebody quietly reading the Bible. And it always heartens me. And I always try to say something, you know, how nice to see you starting the day the best way or something. And you just get a lovely moment of Christian togetherness there. (laughs) And there isn't a better way, really. And I use Magnificat, that very useful little booklet that is produced by Catholic Group. And the people that run it in Britain um, happen to be friends of mine who took it on. And it has beautiful scriptural readings following the lectionary every day. And it is very good to sit on the train and 
Here is the word of God. I mean, gosh, it's just beautiful. (laughs) And there is a bond with other people reading the scriptures. And somehow in a muddly sort of way, I just wonder if that doesn't do London some good as we (laughs) whiz through the suburbs as well as doing our own hearts good. Well, you chose, actually, you chose the whole book of Acts for us today, (laughs) but we're obviously not going to have time to cover the whole thing. But I think we'll start with reading about the Pentecost event and uh, and then we'll let you take it from there, Joanna, just to give the audience uh, you know some kind of grounding where we're going to focus our scripture discussion today. And it is such a key event in the entire salvation history. Uh, and it has a, a huge history that many people merely listening to the lectionary readings on Sunday may not pick up. So we'll look at that in a moment. Let me read beginning with verse 1 through verse 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and wondered, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And who is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Now, Joanna, even as I was reading that, I felt that I was robbing my audience because I should have had you read that <laughs> in the more native English tongue. <laughs> in what the Americans call my English accent. <laughs> Where I come from, we all talk a bit like this. And um, I was just thinking as you were reading, gosh, I'm jolly glad that it's Marcus because there's all of these worrying phrases, you know, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt. And the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene. There's so much scope for getting that wrong. And, and I was going to tell you that I remember once when I was a Protestant pastor, yeah. when I was reading this very passage, just I forgot about this. Because yeah. I know when, when you read this, uh, uh, that kind of passage, the people in the pews are zoning out. Yes, because so I remember sticking in about three of the local towns <laughs> just, to <see. laughs> just to see, you know, mommy or wherever, you know, just throwing it in there just to see if anybody could catch it. <laughs> Wimbledon and the parts of London around Clapham Junction. Yes, indeed, indeed. That's really funny. And what is there are a number of things that strike one. First, of course, some of these places are familiar to us. We hear a lot about Libya at the moment in the news. So it's a reminder at the most trite level. This is a real description of a real event. Rome. Jerusalem, Libya, these are still places we know. And the ancient tribes, they talk about the Medes. In my school, the the classes were named after ancient tribes. And my sister was a Mede. There were Medes and Persians and there were Athenians. I was a Spartan. (laughs) So there's a reality about this. And I'm always grateful, however, that I haven't got to do that reading because it's one of those names where you can get one of the names wrong and everyone laughs at mispronunciation. (laughs) And then there's a whole thing about all of this. When I was a child, I was puzzle because it begins when the day of Pentecost had come. Now, this is an interesting thing about reading it in context, because I remember thinking, well, Pentecost hadn't happened yet, because I knew that Pentecost was this coming of God in wind and fire to the apostles, you know, and the flames that descend on the head of the... But Pentecost hadn't happened. It says when... So the first thing we perhaps need to understand is that Pentecost is a Jewish feast. The people are there for this Jewish feast of Pentecost. I know that sounds obvious, but to many of us, the word Pentecost means precisely this Christian event. Mm -hmm. And this is a Jewish feast, which was sometimes called the Feast of Weeks. And we can find references to this in the Old Testament. And it's the Feast of the Fruits, the first fruits of the harvest. And then again, we can think here of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So I think it it was helpful to me when I really understood, which I did hear in sermons a bit as I was older, that this is the Jewish feast and that's why they're there. 
Otherwise, people get confused. They think Pentecost is a Christian event, right? Well, yes, but it took place, that first Pentecost, on the Jewish Feast of Pentecost. So Such a good point to make because when these people came from far and wide, the last thing they were expecting is what happened. Indeed. And this is very interesting because when God comes, he comes in a form that they would instantly recognize in a fire and in wind. And if we go through the Old Testament, we will think the most obvious example is the burning bush. God is seen in fire and in wind. In fact, you could do an entire Bible study just on that because it is quite interesting to to go through the Old Testament and find these references. Mm -hmm. God is in the wind and in the fire. And I'm interested at the very beginning of Acts, if we turn right to the very beginning of Acts, Mm -hmm. um, beginning of the first chapter, it says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. And this is the author of Acts, Luke, who has already written the Gospel of Luke, or we don't know, he probably wrote these two books at the same time. He is writing to Theophilus. Well, who is Theophilus? Well, of course, the Greek simply means one who loves God, Theo, God, Philo, to love. So we can think of other words like philosophia, one who loves wisdom, hence mm-hmm. philosophy. And incidentally, the name Philip, which comes from Philippos, one who loves horses, Phil Hippos, which is interesting, <laughs> just out of interest. But that tells us. Now, who is Theophilus? Well, it could be a man of that name, Theophilus, uh, or it could be just a code for the reader. Oh, you who love God. You know, it's you, oh, Christian, oh, you who love God. We don't know. And it could be both. It could be one who loves God. It mm-hmm. could be a nickname. It, or it could be a generic phrase for Oh, dear reader, except that it's more than that. It's a reader who loves God. It's one who he knows by name. So it's it's clear that in this book, this is Luke telling one who is already a Christian, and by implication many who are going to read this because he's not writing a personal letter, but for us all. I now want to tell you how it all began with the church because I've already told you about the wonderful things that Jesus said and did. And now I'm just going to tell you about these early days of the church. And when he's writing in this way, as soon as he begins to explain about the wind and the fire, the early Christians, especially those who were Jews, would immediately think, oh, gosh, how important. This is the presence of God. Mm. When we get to wind and fire, this is God descending on the early church. And they would have understood it perhaps in a way that we don't. There are certain words that we might use that conjure up an immediate understanding of what what we mean, you know, some mention of a word in history or something. I mean, to give a stupid, really silly example, to any British person, if you said Winston Churchill, Battle of Britain, immediately conjures up an understanding that we are speaking here of great, noble things, the nation's history, our, our, our great moment of our finest hour, you know, freedom defended and, and, and victory won. Well, wind and fire would have that message, you know, here, listen to these words, wind, fire, you're getting it? Okay, you're with me, you're speaking of God. And that's very important. And then you have immediately after this marvelous description of all these people who come and this wonderful speaking, Peter, and that's significant, Peter standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Now this is very significant. It's always Peter, he's mentioned more than any other apostle. He's always mentioned. The next one, numerically speaking, is John, but Peter is far and away more. And he speaks on behalf and he explains what this is all about. And he explains this is the fulfillment of the prophets of old. This is the beginning of that which we have always been talked about. I sometimes think about Peter and the other apostles. Imagine they were fishermen. They were (laughs) fishermen. I mean, how their lives were changed. We know that Peter at one point was married because we hear reference to his mother-in-law. And it's pretty clear to me that he must have been widowed by the time his mother-in-law is healed, only because of the rather trivial but but very practical point. Do you remember after his mother-in-law is healed, uh, the gospel accounts tell us that then she got up and ministered to them, you know, poured them a cup of tea, basically. And in all honesty, if she would be, she is the mother of his wife, she's his mother-in-law. Well, if her daughter was there, she would have been in charge. I mean, of course, (laughs) if you're the hostess, if somebody comes to my house and my mother is ill, even if she gets well, I say, excuse me, mother, you know, I'm in charge here. I pour the tea. Let's pause there as I'll let you take a sip of your tea during the break, Joanna, because um, I do appreciate you bringing out some important things that remind us that too often people read the scriptures and don't know the history behind it. And that's what we want to look at here. We're on Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody. I'm joined today by Joanna Bogle. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network.
Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. Hi, this is Jerry Usher reminding you to listen to Vocation Boom Radio Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern exclusively on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Each week I bring you dynamic interviews with bishops, priests, vocation directors, even seminarians and those who support them, all in an effort to assist the Holy Spirit in what is truly a vocation boom around the world. That's Vocation Boom Radio Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern only on EWTN Radio. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grodi's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today with Joanna Bogle, and we're having a good time discussing during the break uh, of, uh, aspects of, of Acts, which obviously we can't encounter all in the, the next 25 minutes. But, Joanna, we wanted to, to, we were talking about Peter a little bit, and mm-hmm. maybe before we move on, you could indeed uh, complete that thought. Yes, it was just that here is Peter. Well, certainly by the time we come to meet him here, he... his life has been changed, radically changed. And it's quite clear that, you know, when he was a younger man, he he was there with his wife and he had a little fishing thing. And then there comes these dramatic changes in his life. And I feel for Peter because he becomes the strongest link. And yet he had never imagined when he was a younger man that he would do this. I have a sort of picture of him taking leave of the things that he loved, you know, his little boat and everything. And it's going to lead him in this huge adventure. And well, that's a, the good point to that is as soon as our Lord was crucified, and, and so there's a sense in which this whole time period, three years or so of him following our Lord, the first thing he does is go back to fishing. Yeah. He's drawn back to that. He's really not sure what's next. Indeed. And, and of course, our Lord shows up on the... On the, shore. on the shore. On the shore. And it just interests me because here, you're right, and here in Acts is this man standing up with the eleven and lifting up his voice and addressing people. And there's this immense burden which from now on, and our Lord had told him, you know, someday somebody will put a rope around you and lead you where you would rather not go. Yeah. Now, in a sense, there's a message there for every Christian, and, and that's been so true down all the generations, men who faced martyrdom and so on, particularly for those who are leaders. And I would say there's a sort of ache in the heart when you read that because, oh, couldn't you have let that decent fellow just go on with his fishing or something? Couldn't you have chosen some man who'd been trained to leadership, you know? And he chooses this fisherman whose life, I just find it a very moving thing. Uh, Well, I always think of Edmund Campion Mm. because after he had escaped England to go to the continent to become ordained. I think he was teaching in Prague or something. And so he could have stayed there. And he went where he would rather not go. And there is a sense in which, you know, God puts a rope around your neck and leads you where you would rather not go. When you say the the verse that was recently in Mass, uh, here I am, Lord. Yes, here I am, I've come to do your will. I was listening to that. It's just so interesting. And this idea of this open-hearted 
response. And it's interesting because Peter, with so much courage and indeed with so much honesty, if you think about it, the only reason we know about his denial and so on is only Peter could have told that story. So he's been very humble. He tells the story against himself. Because of that, it's possible for Peter to to teach and preach. He's open to God's will. And here we are later. Here he is in Acts. And I'm reading now as we flow on and he mm-hmm. addresses the crowd. And the Peter asks, the people say to him, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he's able to preach with great confidence and thus begins this small community of the of the church this this small church which amazingly amazingly is actually the church that we have today <laughs> i mean just find this extraordinary and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and that is basically what we're doing today. The Apostles' teaching, which we repeat Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in the Creed, I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and in his only Son, Jesus Christ, who was the whole details of his life, his death, his resurrection. The Apostles' teaching, that's the first thing. So really four things here. Teaching, the Apostles' teaching, unchanged. The fellowship, we do it together. It's not just me. I love God and I'm a good girl and I'm okay and Jesus loves me. No, there's a fellowship, which we have to nurture. You know, we really have a fellowship. So we meet together. Of course, we also have to pray on our knees on our own, but we are together. There's a teaching aspect to that. There's communion. We serve one another. To the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, the centrality of this, the breaking of, and the prayers we pray. I just find that so interesting. Here they are, right at the beginning, doing the four things that the church has gone on doing for 2,000 years. And I find that, in a way, very sort of moving. Yeah, and I want to just point out, just to make sure the connection, that the word here for fellowship is the word koinonia, which is also translated as communion, communion and participation. So the, the parallel with this passage is in 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word participation is the very word that's here as Fellowship. Isn't that interesting? Communion. Koinonia. It's bigger than just being mates together. That's very Coffee and donuts. It's It's, a whole... It's it's a a sacramental... Mm. It's a, a, a deeper union. Husband and wife are not merely friends. They're koinonia. Isn't that interesting? They're one. That's very profound. And then... That's very interesting. And in this church... We begin to get something which has marked the church down the centuries. And this is awesome. This is miracles. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple and a man lame from birth was being carried there. Now, this is the beginning of something which amazingly, awesomely continues to this day. Through his church, God gives these gifts of healing. And I find this fascinating because this has not left the church and right down to the present day we can think of people let's give an example of the very holy man Padre Pio as he came to be known who was able through his prayers to bring healing to people and there's a mystery about this that God continues to work miracles of healing not randomly but to prove the truth and glory and beauty of his church and this has never left the church and we still to this day the church is profoundly associated with healing we shouldn't be glib about this well in fact one of the primary reasons that at the end of the 19th century that many of the more conservative protestant theologians took the position that they no longer believe that miracles ceased with the New Testament. One of the, and some of the uh, the great teachers at Princeton, who at the time were the conservative fundamentalist founders, took that position was because Catholics believed in the continuation of miracles. Isn't that interesting? Because huh, actually, in my experience, 
evangelicals today, at least in principle, believe in the continuation of Well, miracles. today they do. But how interesting that they did at not. At the time. Mm. So there was a time when the fundamentalists and the liberals were more on the same page in de- denying the reality of miracles, but the reasoning was different is because Catholics. I mean, every saint, for a person to be declared a saint, has to be demonstrated that two miracles have occurred as through a their result, intercession. Through their intercession. And it's interesting because... What happens through these miracles, we end up understanding the greatness, the hugeness of God more. And again, we have this here in the Bible. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. What this man does when he is healed is praise God. He's perfectly well aware that the apostles did not do this in their own power. They did it through the power of God. God gives this to his church. It's extraordinary to me that that this is so profound. This passage is one that I I, I particularly like because it... It confirms why the Coming Home Network exists. Mm -hmm. Because think about this story. This guy, he was lame from birth. So, here he's a man. What does he do for a living? Nothing. He begs because he's lame. All of a sudden, he's healed. And all the people see that he is healed. So he gets up the next morning. What's he going to do to raise money for his family? That's a very good point. Everything he's ever done was begged because he was lame. Now he's a new man. He's healed a new life. What's he going to do? That's why the Coming Home Network exists, because often when people convert to the church, they lose their livelihood. And they have a, an absolutely legitimate claim on the church. The rest <laughs> of us have to pitch in. I don't mean claim in any insurance claim sense. Right. I mean a moral claim, a friendship. Yeah. Come on, we must help. And in fact, that's clearly what the early church would have done. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Now he's That's very profound. <laughs> and I find there's something magnificent about this. When I was first studying the Acts of the Apostles at Maryvale, um, I remember thinking, well, it's all the lovely things that the apostles did. Well, it's very much, much more than that. As always, there are very many levels of meaning and understanding right. in, the, in the scriptures. And, and here comes another one, because very quickly coming on, we have the, the church it takes its life and so on. And fairly soon, we're going to come to the story of Stephen, the first martyr. And here again, we have this sort of this link with conversion. I find this really quite interesting where Stephen preaches and they can't bear what he's saying, so they stone him to death. And uh, Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people, and they can't bear it. And he ends up um, preaching, and they stone him to death, which is, of course, a ghastly way to die. But there's a very small sentence, which I just think is so interesting, (laughs) that the people laid their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul. Now, first of all, this is this is rather ghastly, isn't it? They're, they're busy stoning them, so they take off their cloaks so they can get a bit of, better, better hit, you know, swing their arms. It's, it's a bit ghastly. There's sort of horrible energy in that. I mean, they really yeah. did stone him. And I don't want to dwell on this, but it is interesting. I mean, we're thinking here about the axe man sort of getting a grip on the axe or... And this is ghastly to speak about, but when they tortured men in the Tower of London, you know, you take off your shirt, to Isn't that disgusting? Yeah. So there's actually something horrible about this. I'll put down my cloak so I can really chuck stones at this man, Stephen, until he dies. I mean, it's horrible. But it's significant. They put their cloaks down. Well, Saul is going to have the most famous conversion we've ever heard of. And I think that is so profound. And it's the first example we have. John Henry Newman comments on this of the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church because Stephen dies and he dies blessing God and blessing, you know, there's no rancor there. He gives himself to God and Saul sets off eventually for Damascus so he can get on with his serious job of persecuting some Christians. Goody, goody, we're going to kill a lot more of them. And then he has this dramatic conversion. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And God calls him. And we have this marvelous conversion story so much so that even today it's one of the few phrases from the bible that you will still hear still hear in common speech you know damascus road conversion let's pause there joanne i'll take one more one more break and uh, uh, the one thing i was going to say is that that little imagery of the the men laying their cloaks at the feet of paul and I, maybe maybe there's scholarly work on this but i haven't seen it so it's just that i don't know it but I almost wonder if that's because, almost like if they were going to trial for this murder, that they would be saying, he's the one that brought this about. In other words, because of his vehemence against this church, that somehow he arranged this 
gathering so that this would happen. So the idea of throwing the cloaks at his feet was a way of saying he was the ringleader, which, you know, we see later Mm. him admitting that. Let's take a break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Joanna Bogle. And you're hearing this on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are interested in learning more about our Catholic faith, or if you know someone who is interested in becoming Catholic, please visit our website at www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Joanna Bogle. Once again, we're having a good time talking between the break. <laughs> And uh, it's just we just have too much to cover, Joanna, right? Yeah. So let's jump right in with the 12 minutes or so we have left. We, uh, you said you wanted to be good. If we're going to cover the whole book of Acts, it's hard to do that without <laughs> at least a little comment on the conversion of, of St. Paul. Indeed. And I'd like, I'd like to emphasize that we began with Pentecost, and, and that is so central that, in a sense, everything flows from that. Yes, I was just interested in the conversion of uh, St. Paul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This idea you persecute the church, you persecute me. You know, this is my body, yeah. the church. That's very deep, very important. And then Paul has this, uh, this Damascus Road conversion, still an expression we use. If somebody changes their mind on something in politics or something, we say he had a Damascus Road experience. Um, I'm always just interested because he was struck down from the ground and the pictures always show him falling off his horse. Just an interesting point that the scriptures don't say he was on a horse. It's just possible he was walking. I've yet to see a picture that doesn't show the horse, but we don't know. (laughs) Then there's another healing which is also important that I just like to rise about, you know, that Peter, just going back to what we're seeing about Peter, uh, where he heals Tabitha, rise, and she opened her eyes and she saw Peter and sat up. I just, that just reinforces this point about about the gifts to the church. I think one of the things you have in Acts... Because you see Paul later in 1 Corinthians talking about tongues and a variety of gifts. One of them's healing. We don't think about that, but we see it in Peter himself, himself. receiving those gifts. As Jesus said earlier, that you know that you think what I've done, you're going to do greater things. It's, you know that's what Christ promises those as the Holy Spirit has guided and, them. And down through the centuries, you know, amazingly, he has kept that promise. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things I find exciting about the Acts is this sense of God's power in the church, and that Luke is saying these wonderful things happened, and this and this. There's an, a sort of an urgency if you like, about his writing. Then this happened and this and this. And then as the story unfolds, I mean, it's history, but it unfolds, Paul and Barnabas and the journeys. And again, these are places we can find on the map and so on. I have a, a, a niece uh, who is Maltese, she's married to my nephew, and she's very, they're very proud of the fact that Paul went to Malta first. And the people there were friendly. That he makes this, the people there were friendly. And the Maltese, who to this day are friendly and who to this day have kept the faith, which is wonderful. But all of this has a reality about it. And this reality, this preaching goes hand in hand with the miracles. And we also see them in the church thrashing out certain issues and listening to the voice of the authority of the church. So we get into deep issues here and we reach the first council of Jerusalem and so on. But what we have here is not just a little group of folk doing their best. No, there's a clear understanding that something has been founded, which is the church through which the Holy Spirit is pouring out these gifts. And there is also a human muddle and failure. So you get quarrels and difficulties. And also they have to use common sense. They have to make decisions about what to do and how to do it. So you get the human and the divine, if you like, working together in the Acts of the Apostles. At no point do they say, oh, well, it'll all just sort of coast along. No, God will sometimes intervene dramatically, road to Damascus. But sometimes they have to get together and make a decision and do this next thing. And they have to make practical arrangements. And they have to sort out caring for the widows and orphans and deciding who's going to go where and what they're going to do when they get there. And it's interesting to me because 
in a sense, that's still what the church does. You know, we have to get together and elect a new pope. You know, mm-hmm. we have to do things. We have to raise money because this church roof has fallen in and we jolly well have to build a new one or whatever. And as you say, you you found the Kirk Coming Home Network. But in a very profound sense, we're still doing what the early church did. And in a very exciting sense, God is, is, is still pouring out his... Yeah blessing and of course in a rather ghastly way we're still making mistakes we're still quarreling and things are still sometimes difficult but i just find in a sense the acts of the apostles is is still going on we're still in in, in that sense writing new chapters you know well sometimes in some ways we're still uh, repeating the same mistakes that uh, faithful men and women have done throughout the ages who are still yet sinners. We all are. We all are. And we make mistakes. And by not learning from history, we repeat the mistakes. You know, uh, Anna Syra, uh, uh, Sapphira and, and her husband, who on the one hand are uh, making a public statement about what great givers they and are when, to, when they're, they're lying. They're holding it back. And I've always found that one's a very, very frightening uh, verse, a big reminder. And, you know, when we meet God, he will know the times we bragged about the wonderful service we were giving to the church when actually we were pocketing a generous fee for doing something which everyone thought we were doing <laughs> or something like that. And people who, as it were, hold back. No, there's, there's a whole lot of this. And this whole idea dear to of the church at the service of God at the service of God not for my self-aggrandizement not for get rich quick I think that's actually you know a lesson for someone like me it's, it's comparatively easy to think you're frightfully important when you're sitting here in a studio in front of a microphone well one isn't actually you're a tiny little cog in this great wheel of rolling on with the faith um, and I think there's this rather thrilling thing as well in, in the Acts where it flows from Pentecost this this generous outpouring of the spirit and it doesn't as it were run out it's not a big dollop at the beginning and then it's slowly running out through history we are the church of pentecost and god renews this in each generation and he raises up saints i think it's interesting that when the church slowly came to understand how big the evangelization was going to be because in the high middle ages when you had a very christianized europe and some of the most glorious architecture ever known to man and we have you know chartres cathedral westminster abbey and York Minster and so on, it also began to be clear that the world could now be explored. And it took a while for Christians to realize, oh, my gosh, we're going to have to evangelize, you know, the Americas and so on. And in the 19th century, like the Acts of the Apostles, they set out on journeys and they got in little steamboats and they chugged off to Africa, often at peril of their lives. There were nuns from the order that taught me at school who were running schools in India, but a lot of them didn't run schools in India because they died not long after arrival from diseases to which they had no resistance. Mm -hmm. And even as we speak, there are missionaries, missionaries, and some of them we'll know about and some we won't know about. And in the church of the future, we don't know when the Lord will come back, but there may be a great Chinese church which will owe something to the great heroes and martyrs of long ago. And to me, that's rather thrilling. One day there'll be a Chinese pope whose ideas on the formality of things and so on will make people like me look very casual, I dare say, very ritualistic, very Chinese. I remember a book... Actually, it was a seven-volume book that we used in seminary when we studied the history of the church. I won't mention it, but it was a well-used book amongst evangelicals. And it told the history of the church from the beginning of the church until modern day, all from the standpoint of evangelization and missionary. So it mentioned everybody in church history, but always as missionaries going forth. But the one thing that this particular author, who was not just not Catholic but anti-Catholic, that he he ignored the fact that they every one of them were sent. Sent, and I'm interested that Paul always writes as a we. He was never uh, just on his own, and he never even saw the we of the church as just a community. It's always a communion. There's always this we, this we. There's always this profound sense you are you are sent, and there's always the church as much more than just a few people who keep in touch by letter or newsletter. It's not like that. There's a, there's something which is much bigger than mere human community. And I I understand, too, in the modern era, when you can see this sense of mission, it's even easier to understand now we can all tune in and see Rome and the successor of Peter in Rome. But there is this sense of being sent. And in in another way, every Catholic understands that they should be a missionary and we contribute to the missions. 
But we are also ourselves missionaries to our friends yeah. and our neighbors who may desperately need this message. And Paul, St. Paul is always at pains to show his own humility and, and, and he knows he's not so good as he should be and he has a thorn in the flesh and so on. That's a lesson to us. We are all not as good as we should be. We're all broken, even though we've got something wonderful to share. The, another point that I want to make sure you point out in Acts chapter 15 which is such an important chapter because it's the first Jerusalem Council. Mm. But the point being that many modern scholars want to oppose that these early Christian communities were independent, that somehow from the time Jesus sent the apostles, that then from then on every little group was independent, isolated, a Johannine, a Petrine, a Pauline community, each doing their own thing, when in fact we see in verse 22, that then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch. They were sent with a letter. There was no question that this authority of the church covered the whole church as it spread out. Yes, it seemed good with the apostles. In a sense, you can almost hear the, the voice of Rome in this. It, it's almost like this announcement, you know, then it seemed good to us to do this. And I still get a sense of that unity of the church, which actually, in a way, you can have in a new way now with the internet and so yep. on. You can hear what seems good with the elders, you know, <laughs> because some new announcement comes from Rome. It, it seemed good that we would should make a statement about this. And there is a, a, a sense in which people are sent, are sent. And it never was just a little fellowship group. And we all know from experience that you can't just do it as a little fellowship group because all your petty quarrels, which we have and had in the church, are going to break it unless there is something at the heart and at the core. And, and here we have Christ not leaving us alone. He's there in his spirit and he gives us Peter. He gives us this structure. And fundamentally, this, this structure hasn't changed. And the other thing, of course, that's quite touching is that the names are continued. How many people do we know called Paul down the centuries? How many Paul? I mean, how lovely, you know, yeah, yeah. so many people. Peter. and A few Jameses. A few Jameses, <laughs> including the one I'm married to. Hello, Jamie. <laughs> and and John, you know, and there's something very marvelous about this. I mean, God raises up new saints and, and, and you know, names have all sorts of meanings. But I am rather touched that these, these apostles' names just echo and re-echo because we all owe so much to them. And one of the things when we, uh, the acts, you can really, you have to see in connection with Paul and his letters. And again, he is not thinking, oh, well, I'd like to write a letter. Keep going. He's saying something much richer than that. He is writing with a certain authority and there's always a we. It's never just, I think this, hello. It's not. There's a communion. I find this very thrilling. In fact, when he does say, and you see it in First Corinthians, when he's going to admit it's his advice he says that this is me but then he'll clarify when it's me or when it's of God and he that's an important yeah. one as well when we one day you must invite me back and we'll tackle the letters of Paul <laughs> meanwhile I enjoyed looking at the Acts of the Apostles thanks Joanna thanks for joining us today and for your work on EWTN what's the name of your new series or your continued series it's Feasts and Seasons lots of lovely recipes alright great well, well glad you're doing that but I'm also glad to see that this Maryvale experience is also expanding you. It's, I wish I could do it. It's great. All of you, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. God bless you. See you again next week.